If you have your Bibles, we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 13 and continue in this series on parables. Today, the subject is heart conditions. And I want you to know your heart condition, I pray, will be revealed as it encounters God's word today. Parables are stories that Jesus told, and it's one of the main ways that he taught. And as we arrive at chapter 13 of the book of Matthew, near the halfway point, a closer examination might show you some things that you may not know. And let me just give you a couple of insights here. First of all, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels, and I have a lot of parallel things in them. This particular parable it occurs in, in all three synoptic gospels. It is also has the trademark of being the first parable appearing in the book of Matthew, as well as in the book of Mark. Many scholars believe the book of Mark was the first um, gospel penned. And so this is important. First parable in Matthew, first parable in Mark. It's a big deal, if you will. But I think more importantly, you should see as a backdrop to this, that we're nearing the halfway point of the book of Matthew. Lines are being drawn. And the lines in particular being drawn is about who this Jesus is. What is his nature of his teaching? What is this really all about? As a reminder, word pictures are parables. Parables are word pictures. They're meant to demonstrate a truth. And in this case, how the word of God is going to be received, how it's going to be applied and it's going to give evidence from the fruit in your life. But to view it narrowly would be a mistake because as you come and we look at this, understand that we as believers that sit in this room, we know who Jesus is. But the witnesses in the book of Matthew did not. And it was confusing for the disciples that there was beginning to be a firestorm brewing about Jesus. There may be confusion in your life as well about who Jesus really is. What difference will it make when you hear God's word and the claims that God makes or Christ makes on your life? Parables are no sweet stories. They're actually meant to be a bugle call to draw you in front of the mirror and inspect really where you are. And even as I say bugle call, I want us to have the same understanding of what I mean by that. So, do you know the difference between assertive and aggressive? Assertive and aggressive, two words starts with A, but they're a little bit different. I had a friend of mine who was a trainer a sales trainer, he was from New York. He said the difference between assertive and aggressive looks like this. Aggressive is you walk up to somebody and you punch them in the nose. That's aggressive. Assertive is you walk up to someone and you look at them and you say, I'm going to punch you in the nose. (laughs) And then you punch them in the nose. I'm going to punch you in the nose today. I am going to show you that God's word is meant to be wrestled with. 
So figuratively speaking, we're all going to get punched in the nose. And you should see yourself in this parable because you are there. You are in there. And remember when Jesus told parables, he was laying laying alongside a word picture, a spiritual truth about the kingdom of God that the listeners could identify with. And this first one may or may not be something you identify with, especially if you're not a farmer. And the story here, again, appears in three of the Gospels. So let's look at it together. First, First nine verses, Matthew chapter 13. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and was beside and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into the boat and he sat down. And then the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. In other words, a farmer. A sower is a farmer. A farmer went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came, and it devoured them. And other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose... They were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. And other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seed fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. This story could be more aptly called the parable of the seed or the parable of the sower. Many times it's referred to as the parable of uh, soils, which really is a more complete definition of what it is because the, the seed and the sower remain the same. The only variable in the story is the soils. The only thing that's really different is the soils. And the soil points to something that's present in this room. It points to the heart, your heart and my heart. And even as I say that, we're going to ask that big probing question, what is your heart condition? I must add, well, what is the heart all about? Because we know the heart as a physical organ pumping blood through us. But this thing that the Bible refers to is not the muscle pump in your chest. When the Bible speaks of your heart, it refers to the center of life's motivation within. It is the place, listen, it's the place of worship. Now you think this room is a place of worship. And some of you, when you hear me say worship, you hear me turn on religious language and you say, oh, I'm there, I'm here. I'm worshiping. But that really isn't what the scripture does. The scripture looks at the heart and says that's where worship occurs. And I don't want us to get off course here. I want us to be on the same page. This is not about just a religious thing, although worship is religious. The Bible does not approach worship that way. The heart is the place where your highest value is actually revealed. 
It reveals the thing that you worship. It's the thing that makes you tick, no pun intended there. What you really care about, what's really inside you, what really comes out, comes out of the heart. But the scripture is also clear about this. Jeremiah chapter 17 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. The Hebrew, in the Hebrew, this desperately sick is probably best in the English translation, rendered as the New American Standard does. It says that it's without cure. It's terminal. When a doctor looks at you and says, this is terminal, that means dead, done. It's going to get you. The scripture here says the heart is beyond cure. And Jeremiah closes, he says, who can understand it? So when you and I look at this parable, and for uh, for us to adequately see what is really going on, we've got to ask, what really goes on in my heart? Jesus, in this parable talks about what goes on in people's hearts. So that's what I want us to talk about today. What is your heart condition? Number one is this. You might find that your heart is hard. And when your heart is hard, you're going to reject truth. Now, even as I say that, I know that I have hearers sitting in this room that would argue immediately With that statement, you may not think I reject truth. But in actuality, you may truly do so. And the the picture here is the seed goes out and it hits a place where there's a path through the field or along the edge of the field. And there's no depth of soil. There's no place for it to get in. the, The soil is hard. So God's word comes and it just bounces off. But there's a second thing that goes on here that we must be careful to see. Jesus says that birds come and devour them. And he explains it in verse 19. So I want to point you to verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what is sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. We live in a culture that we witness evil, but we have a hard time believing that evil is behind what we witness. A person of evil. Jesus had no issue with this. In fact, he says the hard heart We'll find seed falling on it, bouncing off. And before that heart knows, the enemy comes and snatches it away. Before you arrive at lunchtime today, some of what is sown on your heart will be gone. Snatched away. And you not even know it. Why? Because even at this moment, I don't want you seeing... The devil in every shadow, but make no mistake, he's been at it a long time and he's constantly trying to outflank you. And let's talk what this really looks like in 2016. The place of the hard heart, it's clearly seen here. 
You may, you may not sit here and say, Brian, I don't think I really have a hard heart. I'm open to truth. I listen. But actually, upon close inspection, you actually know what, what's really at issue. And the issue is that you don't call yourself hard. You just call yourself a cynic. You know what a cynic is? The cynic is the individual that believes very little. And he lives his life or her life consistently doubting the existence of truth. And trust few, if any, nor do they see any need for personal change in their life. And it's a sad, if it was not a hilarious, how the cynic is applauded in our culture. Saying I'm a cynic is worn like it's a badge of honor. But even the cynic knows they didn't want to be a cynic. But sometimes you move out of being that child, this child of wonder eyes... And drifting into cynic, doubting everything, because life, it just ground you up. Life's made you crusty. It's like the crust of dirt and gunk on your skin when you sweat through the day. But it's not on your skin, it's on your heart. Life's brought you disappointment. It has dealt you heartache. And you've built this wall of faithlessness around you as if it protects you. Yet, without even knowing it, let me tell you what happens in the cynic's life, folks. The cynic does not know it, but over time, it builds actually a heart of pride that believes that they are the ones that really see life in other people for what they are. They really see, and everybody's got an angle, and everybody's trying to outdo them, and you're always testing and And just turning everything over. You just, everything that comes out of people's mouth, you just, you don't believe anything. That is a hard heart. And we don't want to hear that. But that's what happens to us. The hard heart believes only facts. Cold, measurable, calculated numbers. Is it measurable? Is it factual? Maybe it's right. And if something's not understood, it's disregarded as foolish or even superstitious. So i got to ask you, how much tolerance do you really have for what God's Word says? Or do you find yourself arguing with it? How much appetite do you have for truth? Have you grown crusty? Does God's Word just bounce off? Has it become so familiar that you basically, it does not work. You've tried that Jesus thing, it does not work. But you come because somebody invites you. You come because it's what you do. But your life could be truly hard. Jesus talks about a second type of soil here. He moves from the hard heart. And he says, other seed, verse 5, fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up. In Palestine, there's lots of limestone. It resides just below the surface. And just like you could take a drive through Boone County, out in near the bottomlands, near the river, and you can see fields in the distance, tilled up, waiting for seed. You could not tell all that's going on under the surface. And just as I look out this morning... And as you meet others in this room today, 
And all the people that you will encounter, you don't necessarily know all that's going on below the surface. But often what's going on below the surface is that there's rocks. And what happens, what Jesus says here in verse 20 and 21, as he explains it, he says, As for what was sown on rocky ground, it's the one that hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. So this is the person that sits in the room and hears God's word or listens to good teaching and go, man, that's it. Or on a more surface level, it might be like this. Maybe you are like me. You have the battle of the waistline and you hear about a new eating plan. And what do you do? That's it. I just came off whole 30. I ate meat and vegetables and fruit for 30 days. Not one speck of sugar. Do you know what I found out? I'm addicted to sugar. (laughs) And I would rather have bread than breathe sometime. But it was good. It was good. It was right. There was no weight, no weight loss of any significance. But we're all, all you got to do is go to the bookstore. Look for any self-help. Go to the diet section. Look, we're all prone to say, give me something new. Give me something that feels good. Give me something that gives me instant results. And even in the witness of God's people, we hear God's word. And if it hits, its, hits us right, we go, that's it. That's it. That's it. We receive it with joy but notice what Jesus happens, says happens. This plant springs up, but there's rock underneath. And the sun scorches. It's not had to deal with going down deep. It just likes the quick and the easy. We all like the quick and the easy. All soil has difficulty, but shallow soil, superficial soil, depth is not the goal for the shallow heart. We don't want it uh, deep. What we want is we want it easy. Give me the easy. We would rather have it comfortable. We'd rather have it even if the rocks are there, that's okay. We all have issues in our lives, we say. And when we encounter things that are not to our liking, we just move on to something else and look for the next best fix. When your heart's shallow, you move toward what feels good and easy and is easy. John Wooden, you may know that name. He was the coach at UCLA. He led the UCLA Bruins to 10 national basketball championships. And by the time that he got to number five, all the best players in the country wanted to play for John Wooden. Wooden had an, a, an interesting approach. He'd go on these recruiting visits. He'd go talk to the prospect in their home. And he said he was not there to talk the kid into playing for him. He said, I was there to see how the kid interacted with his parents. Did he listen? Did he smile? Did he care about others? Wooden said, a kid that does not listen or care about others cannot be taught. And so he'd pass. Didn't matter how good he could dribble the ball or how sweet he could shoot. 
It is legend that the first practices of UCLA were consistent. And this is how they went. Now, these are all Americans sitting in the locker room. The best in the country. Hour one was devoted to learning how to put on your socks and your shoes. And how to tie them appropriately. An hour doing that. Second hour consisted of running and passing. The ball did not hit the floor. Run and pass, run and pass, run and pass, run and pass. Learning to share the ball. Learning that a a game that lasts as long as a college game where everybody is exceptional, fatigue sets in in the shoulders and in the back as well as in the legs. It was not until the third hour that dribbling was occur, uh, occurred. No shooting, no All-Americans showing what they could do, no applause, no, it was about teamwork, it was about exhaustion, it was about fundamentals. And ten national championships later, kind of hard to argue with, huh? But we like it easy. We like the limelight, we like the sweet shot, we like the applause of the crowd. We like it superficial. Just give me the basics. Intolerant hearts are hard and there's little room for change. And you say, well, Brian, I don't think I'm that. I'll do the hard things. Really, let me ask you this. Let me just ask you a few strange ways that rocks show up in your heart. Do you, are you prone to not like being around people different than you? How about circumstances that make you feel uncomfortable? How about music not to your liking? Are you that guy that when you're driving and your kids want to listen to country music, that you say, not while I'm driving? I'm chief of that tribe. I don't, I, sorry folks, if you like country music, I don't like country music. But because I have to be consistent, some of my children do. So we listen to country music until dad sticks his head out the window and throws up. (laughs) Nah. Look, rocks show up in strange ways. Shows up in that attitude that says, you know, I don't like being around those people. I don't think that small group's for me. Because they're different than you. Maybe God sent different people into our lives to help you grow up. Help you change. Help you see that you've got rocks in your life. But shallow heart's not interested in that. We're interested in ease and comfort. Is that you? Jesus also talked about a third type of heart. And it's called the crowded heart. And the crowded heart is distinguished by what it worships. Remember, the, the casual center of your motivational self, this is your heart. And when your heart's crowded, you worship multiple things. Look at verse 7. Jesus said, other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up, and it choked them. He explains it down in verse 22. As for what was sown among thorns... This is the one that hears the word, but the cares of the world and deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. 
is your heart crowded? Christ spelled out two key indicators. Indicator number one is the cares of the world. Now, what is this cares of the world? Well, the Greek translation could best say this is about anxiety in your life. Worry. How prevalent is it? Cares of the world. The book of Mark in chapter 4, verse 19, which is a parallel passage, he added... Desire for other things, cares for the, of the world and desire for other things. Now that comes close to so we're going to get punched in the nose. Okay, here we go. Listen. Are you like me? Do you have a little bit of FOMO? Now, our young people know what that is. Fear of missing out. That's what that is. Fear of missing out some, something that you perceive that you really need. And, and this is how it works most prevalently in, in America, and especially in 2016. I see this very prevalent. Our phone carrier, cell phone carriers are brilliant. Every two years, you are qualified for what? An upgrade. You all know it. Now, notice they never say in the commercials... Or in the fine print, when you need a new phone after two years of service, come and it will be ready for you. No. You can have a fine working piece, a device, more powerful than the computers that put men on the moon. In your pocket. And it works fine. And it holds a charge. And you can call people and you can text people. But the moment that Two-year agreement is up. What do you do? Make a beeline toward the phone store. That's desire for other things. Not need. And I'm not, that, not saying that that's a sin, but I'm saying, folks, we all are tempted to live our life with a crowded heart. We do this with a lot of things. We do it with clothes. We do it with cars. We do it with TVs. Stuff. And you may have heard me say this before. And what we do at yard sales, if you go to yard sales. We have yard sales. We sell things. Then we take the money and we go to somebody else's house. (laughs) And buy stuff that they didn't want and bring it back to our yard sale. We buy things we don't need with money we really don't have. And sometimes it's to impress people that we don't even really like. It's what we do. And our hearts get crowded because of it. And Jesus goes on to explain. He says, this is about also the deceitfulness of riches. And before you tune me out, just hear me out. The scripture does not condemn wealth. The scripture points out that the love of money, that is a place where you will have to be extremely careful. Because it's there, the love of money is the root of evil. Because what it does is the love of money will mimic God. It will mimic God. And what we do is we make a beeline for it because we believe that it builds security. And we build these straw houses thinking that it will protect us from the firestorm. It's called savings accounts, investments, more stuff. 
And it's just like salve. And it's done through, through the accumulation of wealth. There is nothing wrong with it. The problem comes in this. When money owns you and when it's lying to you and you think that it makes you, that's where the problem resides. If you've ever been in sales, I have spent my years in sales working on commission. I, uh, I'll never forget a conversation that I had with my, the president of our company at the time. I asked him, we had had a magnificent sales month, and he was not happy. And just because I was curious enough, I had to ask, how many more sales is it going to take? And this is what he told me, something profound, I'll never forget it. He said, we always need one more. How many we need? We need one more. We need one more commission. We need one more trip to the bank. We need one more buck in the bank. We need one more. And an interesting study several years ago in Money Magazine asked people from a broad swath of life in America... What would it take to make you wealthy? I bet you guys like Jamie Hatfield knows these things about people. Who, he loves the Lord. We have other investment guys in the room. Ask, ask what would it take? They asked a guy that made $35,000. A whole bunch of people, how much it would it take? Overwhelmingly, people say that it takes about twice as much. They asked the guy making 35. He said, I need to make 70. They asked the guy making 70. Guess what he said? About 140, 150. They asked guys making a quarter of a million dollars what it would take to make them feel wealthy. Consistent. You know why? Because we're always craving one more. John Calvin said the heart is a factory of idols. It's working continually. We, it's what we do. Part of our issue really is this. You look in the mirror today and you know that you look frazzled. You know you're looking at all kinds of things you don't quite know how to get out. You know that you're in the rat race. And you know the old saying that even in the rat race that you're in... Even the winner is still a what? A rat. You don't know how to get off this merry-go-round. You don't know how to do it. I'm reminded of a story told by Cynthia. And because as she told it is better than the way I can retell it, I'm just going to read it to you. Cynthia told the author of this book about her time when her father and her had made some plans for a night out in San Francisco. She was 12 years old at the time, and Cynthia and her father had been planning the date for months. They had a whole itinerary planned down to the very last minute, and she was going to attend the last hour of his presentation and then meet with him at the back of the room at 4.30 and leave quickly before everyone tried to grab him and talk to him. They would catch a trolley car to Chinatown and eat Chinese food, which was their favorite thing to do. And they'd shop for a souvenir and they'd see sights for a while, and then they'd, what she said, my dad would say, we'd catch a flick, as her dad liked to say. 
They'd grab a taxi back to the hotel. They'd jump in the pool for a quick swim after it was closed, of course, because that was her dad's specialty. They would order hot fudge Sundays for room service and then watch a late, late show together. They discussed these details over and over and over again before they left because they knew the anticipation was part of the whole experience. Well, this was all going exactly according to plan. As her father was leaving the convention center, though, he ran into an old college friend and a business associate. It had been years since they had seen each other And Cynthia watched as they embraced enthusiastically. His friend said, in effect, I am so glad you're doing some work with my company now. When Lois and I heard and thought about it, it would be perfect. We want to invite you and, of course, Cynthia to get a spectacular seafood dinner down at the wharf. And Cynthia's father responded, Bob, it is so great to see you. Dinner at the wharf sounds great. Cynthia said, my heart was crestfallen. Her daydreams of trolley rides and ice cream sundaes evaporated in an instant. Plus, she hated seafood. And she could not imagine how bored she'd be listening to adults talk all night. But her father continued. Bob, not tonight. Cynthia and I have a special date planned, don't we, sweetheart? He winked at her and grabbed her by the hand, and they ran out the door. As it happened, Cynthia's father happened to be the management thinker guru, Stephen Covey, the author of The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. She said with deep emotion as she recalled the evening not long after her father died, that decision bonded him to me forever because I knew what mattered to him was not business, but me. Your life and mine is constantly going to be glaring and the enemy is going to be trying to outflank you and to try to get you living in such a way that you live for the next deal and the next buck. And I want to encourage you, friend, there's a way off that ride. Don't live in God-like substitutes. And here's the subtle thing about thorns. If you've missed this, thorny soil does not immediately, it does not immediately choke the plant. It takes time. That's the thing about thorns. It grows up with the plant and over time it wraps around and slowly chokes the life out of you. And you suddenly find yourself staring in the mirror and you're a hollow resemblance of what you once were, and you wonder, what has happened? Cares of the world, deceitfulness of riches are two places for us to look. So how do you really know if your heart's hard? How do you really know if your heart's shallow? How do you really know if it's crowded? How do you know? Here's how you know. Broken record, part two. Go to small group for the love of Mike. (laughs) Go to small group. You need it. You need people not to judge you. That's what we think. They're not judging you. You're going to help them, and they're going to help you. That's why we've made it a heartbeat of who we are here at Grace. 
We help one another. People need people like you. People need people like me. Christians need each other in community. You want to grow and change? Don't try to be in a cocoon. Get in a small group. When your heart's truly receptive to Christ, reigning on the throne of your life, your life can be fruitful and full. Now, here's the thing. Jesus talks about all these soil conditions, but he saved the best for last. Broken hearts, torn up soil, life that's been shattered, deep troughs in it. That soil is receptive perfectly to the good seed of God's word. Guess who's responsible for that? You are. Notice what Hosea said in chapter 10, verse 12. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground. Break up your ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness on you. And at the core of Christ's message, there can be fruitful soil. Fruitful soil out of your life. Your heart can be full and free. Christ on the throne. And I want you to know, even as I say this, I want you to know I understand that this is a radical message for some of you. Yes, radical message. You not running your life. Christ is the only sufficient reigner and ruler of your life. When I talk about fruitful hearts, I think I could sum it up best by saying it like this. You want your heart to be fruitful? You want your heart to be full? Some of you sitting in this room today, you truly believe in Jesus. You've known him in a book. You've known him in the preaching of the world word. You've actually even maybe gone to a Christian school or to Catholic school. Your family raised you knowing the truths of the tenets of the gospel. You know it, you know it, you know it. It will not change your life. Believing it ascending, your, your, uh, your intellect doesn't change you. All of us in this room, we need to understand fruitful hearts Move from being believers in Jesus to being followers of Jesus. Do you want to grow and change? Follow Christ. Apply his word to your life. Quit thinking that it's all in your head. And then you live your life the rest of the time the way you want. That is not the teaching of scripture. Jesus is drawing the lines here for us. The lines were being drawn. There were going to be those that followed and their life was going to be impacted. Your life can be impacted too. And I have found for me that the only way that that really happens is a full assault on the hard parts of my heart. Full assault on the crowded, thorny parts of my life. The rocky places. And we're responsible. We need to be breaking it down. We need to repent it. Repent, and we need to run to grace. But see, unless you see yourself in this parable, you won't know where to start. You may not even know where you are. 
And this is the strange thing about sin in the heart. Paul Tripp says, sin lives in our hearts. We were created to be servants of God, but sin makes us lovers of self. We were designed for God's glory, but sin makes us live for our own glory. And unless things change in our heart, our behavior won't change at all. And if it does change, this is what happens. It doesn't change for very long. So what do you do when you sense your heart needs change? When you need change, what do you do? So I want to talk to you heart to heart here just for a second. I'm going to say some things that are going to sound controversial, but I want you to stay with me. You want heart change. What you don't need is a guilt trip. You may have heard yourself this morning that you're hard, you're cynical, whatever you may be, and you, your temptation, some of us, our temptation is go home, crawl in the bed, and cover up our head. You don't need a guilt trip. You don't need new resolve. You don't need to just be trying harder. Oh, I just got to grit and bear it. I got to live for Jesus. And just bear up. Listen to this. You don't need to run from sin. Do you know why? Because that is the behavior out of what's going on in your heart. You can't run from yourself. Where are you going to go? You can't outrun yourself. You don't need radical penance. What you need is the only thing that makes any sense. Everything else, folks, I'm going to tell you, it is madness. It's madness, the kind of things that we try to do. And we need it again and again. What you and I need is to run to the grace of Jesus Christ. We need the good seed of God's promise of new life in Him. We need grace. We need forgiveness. We need Him, His presence and His power. We need His transformation. We need the fruit that only He can bring out of our life. Only He can bring forth. We need to run. We need to run. We need to run. We need to run to Jesus. We need to run to His grace. Don't go with promises that you're going to be different and better. Ask Him to take the broken parts of your life and come and lay it down and say, Oh God, the messes that I make from being hard and being a cynic and being crowded and being chasing all kinds of things, building straw houses. And the firestorm's going to come. Folks, the firestorm gets all of us eventually. And some of you sit here today and you've prayed for your children and you've prayed for your husband, you've prayed for your family, and you've reached out to them and they've said, no, no, no. They... You know what it's like for it to be rejected. Missionaries around the world will share the gospel thousands of times and get no. But firestorms come. Surely they come to all of us. And God knows how to till up the soil. And His good seed, the constant is the good seed will fall on good soil. And you don't know when it's going to take root, and it's not you and I, it's not our job to judge, 
It's our job to run to him. Run to him. Only solution is a desperate cry out to God to make your heart receptive. Apply God's word to your life. Speak truth to yourself. Run, don't walk. Run to grace. Father God, in this room this morning, all over this room, I ask you reveal heart's motivations. Show us, are we hard? Are we, are we cynical? Are we chasing all kinds of things? Worshiping other things? Father, please, draw us. Draw us to you. In Christ's name, amen.